Hi, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone dreaming of the dead dirt coming back. Um, on today's show, we're going to be checking in with Michelle Shaw, who coordinates the Minneapolis Edible Boulevards, about the People's Garden, which is going to be launched next week. There's an event on, on Saturday, September 24th. This is going to be the topic of next week's show. We're going to be talking about how the Biden administration is encouraging and supporting people's gardens all around the country. I mean, urban farming and that. Um, on today's show, we're going to be digging in to the farm bill and how the farm bill affects us. So in studio with me is Sarah Goldman with the Land Stewardship Project. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Sarah. Hey, thanks so much for having me here today. Well, thanks for coming out. And also joining us by phone, by phone is farmer and board member of the Land Stewardship Project, Daryl Mosel. Hi, welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Daryl. Hi, thank you very much. Okay, so first let's get a little background. Um, what is the Farm Bill and why is it important? Yeah, so the Farm Bill is the biggest ag package that moves in the national level, and it's reauthorized only every five years, so it has a significant impact on what's grown on the landscape and who grows it. It also has huge and lasting implications for soil health and water quality. Um, It has really critical racial equity and climate resiliency impacts, and it's really tied to the economic health of rural communities. Uh, The next Farm Bill is up to be reauthorized in the fall of 2023. So we have about a year to organize and make our voices heard to make sure um, that we create agricultural policies that are good for the land, for the people, for rural communities, and for our food and farming system. So, uh, Daryl, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. You are a farmer? Yes, um, I've been farming for about 40 years. 40 years. Uh, I grew up on a, pardon me? 40 years, four zero. Oh, 40, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is my birthday today. So I'm starting oh, to happy birthday! <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it's happy. Thank you. Um yeah, I grew up on a farm uh, just in, uh, just outside of New Ulm, Minnesota, in southern Minnesota, and um, went off to college. Met Diane, and she she and I decided we wanted to farm, so we we uh, were able to buy a farm, and we got started with the with the Minnesota Farm Security Act. Uh, it was a it was a program Minnesota had to try and help young people get on the farm, and so here we are, forty some years later, and we're we're very happy. Well, and, you know, that's a, a beautiful story about how government policy really makes real-world differences. I mean, that, that, that Minnesota program helped you, and now you are working on federal policies as well. So tell us a little bit about um, uh, your work, because you're a board member and you're also sharing a steering committee. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there are so many different organizations that are trying to influence the Farm Bill, as, as I'm sure you're well aware and Land Stewardship Project is right in there, uh, making sure that uh, our voices are heard. And I'm very proud to be a part of that organization. I'm also a member of Minnesota Farmers Union, and we share a lot of values uh, between the two farm organizations. But I, I like Land Stewardship Project because it seems to look look at the whole picture more so than I than I think uh, maybe the other farm organizations do. And I especially like the fact that our membership, which is you know roughly four thousand or so. Uh, includes a lot of uh, non-farmers and also urban farmers, as well as the farmers of more conventional and traditional style. And so, by having all of us together, I think we, I think we really paint a better picture of where our food system should go in the future. And so, I'm very excited about that. 
So, Gerald, bring us to your farm. Tell us what kind of what kind of things do you grow, and how are you growing it? Great. Well, currently, um, we have a small dairy. Uh, about I guess I say small because uh, the, the, the uh, dairy industry has changed so rapidly over the past ten years that I'm. Um, I think the average size herd now in Minnesota is well over 100, but we milk about 70 dairy cows, and we utilize a, a grass rotation system for the dairy as much as we can. This has been a tough summer for that. Um, our farm, uh, dairy farm, is located in Stearns County in central Minnesota, and uh, we just had a lot of rain early on, and it made the pastures kind of unusable for quite some time, but now they're, they're getting back to normal. And we grow, you know, we grow the main crops to feed the dairy cows throughout the year, the alfalfa, the oats, um, the corn, and some soybeans. And then we also are I'm signed up with the Conservation Stewardship Program, uh, which is a federal, federal program that uh, USDA administers. And that program tries to help us, um, I guess, I think farm in ways that are, that are more sustainable. At least I want to believe that. The things that I'm doing with the CSP program, I think are, are really good long-term solutions for dealing with soil erosion, dealing with climate change, and, and all the other issues that uh, I think are important as far as the environment. So, um, Sarah, I know the uh, the farm bill is a very complex bill. It's, it's kind of hard to. So can you tell us a little bit about... Uh, what the farm bill has been what how is our egg system today a result of the farm bill and how do you want to move the egg system and how can we create that movement yeah so that's a, that's a big question but maybe to ground us I'll share a little bit about what's going on in Minnesota right now and how it connects to federal policy so as listeners probably know, and, and you're probably familiar with, last summer, nearly the entire state of Minnesota suffered from drought um, on the tails of summer of extreme flooding, unpredictable weather. Land prices are really high. The average age of farmers in Minnesota is also high. And like obstacles placed in front of young, beginning, black, indigenous, and people of color farmers, they're really heavy. Um, and this doesn't even th- like think about other st- food system stakeholders who are feeling um, a lot of pressure right now from food system workers um, and small businesses across rural communities. And so the Farm Bill actually addresses all of those issues. It's the most comprehensive um, agricultural policy that dictates how our farm economy operates over the next five to ten years. Um, it covers everything from rural economic development to conservation and climate programs to crop insurance and land access. So it really is the biggest, most comprehensive piece of legislation that dictates how our farm and food system operates. It also uh, authorizes over $100 billion in funding. So it's a huge package um, that has a really, really big impact across the nation, not only in Minnesota. So, uh, what did the uh, what did the uh, land stewardship project do? You just went through and got a bunch of feedback from farmers. So, tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah. So, just to start off, I want to acknowledge and thank our farm bill organizing committee. Um, all of our uh, programs and our policy work at the land stewardship project is grounded in our membership, and a lot of uh, the way that we work with our members drives that policy and programmatic work. So, uh, that's the case for our farm bill work too. We have an organizing committee made up of eight farmers, and they really have um, taken the lead in directing how this work. Um, what it what it looks like. So to that end, 
Um, the Farm Bill Organizing Committee worked with me to organize a series of eight Farm Bill listening sessions over the winter, this past winter and spring, on really a range of topics because the Farm Bill is so comprehensive. Um, we had a session on consolidation and crop insurance, a session for young farmers, emerging farmers, and also retiring farmers, among other issues. So we really had a robust um, information gathering phase for our Farm Bill work. And in tandem with those listening sessions, we also launched a survey with the National Young Farmers Coalition and the Midwest Farmers of Color Collective. Um, and the survey was for farmers and food system workers in the upper Midwest region in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa. Um, and so we had about 700 responses to that survey. So we went through the responses from the survey as well as information gathered through the listening sessions to put together a comprehensive Farm Bill platform, which really just outlines what we want to see in the next Farm Bill. Um, and within that platform, there are five key areas that we want to see addressed in the next Farm Bill. So, and if anyone wants to read this, they can go on your website, um, Landstritcher Project, um, Farm Bill uh, 2023. And so the five key areas, consolidation um, uh, and conservation and climate, um, uh, crop insurance reform, um, young and BIPOC farmers, regional food system, and nutrition. Um, and I think I may have... Not maybe I should have you. What are the five programs that? Because because I know I have they, they intersect. I'm sure it was hard also to limit it to five, but so through this process you focused on five areas. Yep, yep, you got the right. Uh, so those are those are the five, and they are pretty broad as you can see just going through the topics because we wanted to acknowledge the breadth of of programs that are influenced by the farm bill and also kind of the suite of policies that we want to see change. So. Um, we can delve into the topics, but you can also, as you mentioned, well, see on the website. So, so one of the big ones is consolidation. So, Daryl, um, do you want to talk about what consolidation has meant for farmers? Well, as Sarah was saying earlier, the the average age right now of farmers is, is compared to all occupational groups, is we're really up there in terms of the uh, you know the age. And as I look around my neighborhood, and I'm pretty sure it's not that different anywhere else in the country, especially in the major farm states here in the Midwest. I, um, everybody's my age. I happen to be 67 today. It's my birthday, as I said earlier. And there, a lot of my neighbors are my age or older, and there really doesn't seem to be a lot that I can see anyway uh, of people coming in to, to run the farms. And so as a result, I think uh, not only has uh, the farm bill in some ways, I think in the past, encouraged consolidation, especially through the crop insurance program, which, as we'll probably get into later, is, is, is somewhat unfair the way it's administered. I think that those programs together, along with, you know, some of the, some of the things that are just happening in, in our society, and especially culturally with agriculture, has caused consolidation. And this uh, consolidation, we're, very, very we're going to take a break. Okay. But, I mean, at one time, Earl Butt said, get big, get large, or get out of farming. And I have this chart um, on farms with 5,000 pigs um, from the USDA. In 1978, it was far fewer than 5% of the, the farms in the United States were these um, large farms. Now it's well over 80%. And that consolidation hurts in so many ways. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about the farm bill and how do we how do we stop the consolidation? How do we go back to a living food system with living soil? farming like we're hired by someone with whom we don't play. We've got new things. And here's the part that makes you want to smile. 
dirt's coming back. The dead dirt's coming back to living soil. The dead dirt's coming back to living soil. So, and that's what this is about. It's about having soil, healthy soil, and healthy beans. And um, joining us by phone is a farmer and board member with the Land Stewardship Project, Daryl Mosel. So, Daryl, um. When it comes to the consolidation, has consolidation in the food system hurt um, American soils? Well, you know, everybody would have a different opinion on it. I, I think it has. Uh, you know, especially especially uh, here in the Midwest where we have, you know, we've really come down to two crops, corn and soybeans. And, you know, when I was growing up uh, on my dad's farm and even, uh, and even after I started farming, the crop, the cropping patterns were so much more diversified, and you know you had, uh, you might have had a, a thousand acres broke up into five or six different crops. And so, you know, by consolidating the farms and then getting larger over the past ten to fifteen, twenty years, we've we've they've narrowed down to basically two crops here in the Midwest, and and I think uh, when you do that, the field sizes get very large, uh, and people are in it for the money as. You know, and I'm not going to say that's all bad. I mean, I'm, I'm farming for the money, too, for the mm-hmm. most part. I need to make a living. But I think there's a point where you go across that line where, you know, the profits just far outweigh anything else you think of in terms of farming. And so mm-hmm. has consolidation hurt the soil? I think it has. I, um, I really feel like um, this spring was a good example of the type of erosion that occurred from the weather events. Uh, it was just stunning to me. Uh, especially in central Minnesota. Most of the cropland in central Minnesota a few, not too many years ago was covered with, with uh, perennials, was covered with uh, small grain and uh, pastures, and a lot of that has disappeared. And it's, I hate to say it, it's, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the way the farm bill is structured in the crop insurance program. And so I guess uh, that's kind of a long answer, but the short answer is yes, I think consolidation has done a lot of harm yeah, to the soil I- health of our of our system. It has. So so under consolidation, what changes do you think need to be made in the federal farm bill? Well, you know, our organization feels like the crop insurance program encourages just these two crops, uh, first of all. And, uh, you know, and I don't have all the answers how to change that, but I'm pretty sure it can be done. I don't think it would take rocket science to figure it out. Um, we don't, you know, when I try to grow other crops, there's very little in the way of... Um, of crop insurance incentive for that, especially some of the small grains like oats and barley and rye and those kinds of things. Uh, it, it, when it comes down to it, if you do the math, corn and soybeans are where the money's at. If um, you know, if you if you're going to have a crop disaster of some kind, your payments are going to be fairly substantial on those two crops. And so that right there would be an area where I'd like to see uh, the crop insurance programs change to encourage more diversity. But it's going to take time. You know, last year I grew oats. I wanted to sell my oats to the local co-op, and they told me, nope, they're not going to buy oats anymore. I was like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. And, uh, well, they made that decision because so few oats are growing in our area now, because just corn and soybeans are growing. So it's going to take time. The marketplace will have to catch up. And uh, uh, I just, uh, but I think that's a starting point. And then, of course, you know, the obvious answer is to get more people on the land and have have a more diverse group of farmers growing different types of crops and growing things that, you know, we, we consume here locally instead of having that food flowing halfway around the world. 
uh, that would be a big change. And I know LSP is, is very active in working on those types of endeavors. Well, I was thinking with the oats, I mean, um, one is uh, so many people are really suffering with high food prices right now. I mean, it's just, it's really, it, it's hard on a lot of people, but, but oats are affordable food. And then there's this whole new oat milk and oat creamers and all sorts of innovative products. But as a farmer, you have trouble finding markets for oats. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, as we, you know, we're talking, it, it can change, of course, but it's going to take an initiative, uh, you know, on the part of, I think, the farm bill, because farmers are generally going to farm, you know, the way that that thing directs us. And, and that's what's directing us right now for the most part. The, the uh, conservation stewardship program is, is a good alternative to some degree. It encourages, uh, for example, uh, Part of the agreement that I made with the conservation stewardship program is to grow more than just two crops. Um, I'm required to to um, alternate with other types of crops, especially perennials, um, and so that helps. But uh, it's uh, it, it is dominated right now, of course, and I'm, I'm sure anyone that's taken a trip from the Twin Cities down to Des Moines, <laughs> it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out there's two crops growing out here in the Midwest and. And in the long run, I think that's really hurting our communities. I, you know, when I started farming uh, 40 years ago, the community I'm nearest, uh, Gaylord, Minnesota, had probably 40 different businesses that that served as farmers. Today, we might have maybe five, and so it's really changed, and it's really making it hard for me as a farmer when I need to do something, you know, fix a piece of machinery or get supplies. I really have to go a long ways now to to do that, and that makes it uh, it makes it difficult. So, Sarah Goldman with Land Stewardship Project, um, under the area of consolidation, what do you what do you want the federal government to do? What are, what are your recommendations? Yeah, so generally we are calling for restored competition to the marketplace, and uh, we're calling on the government to level the playing field for small farmers and ranchers. We really want to see that um, this farm bill tackles monopolization in the ag sector, and we also want to see uh, the USDA and others uh, enforce antitrust laws. Um, we really don't want the, f- the farm bill funding to support farmers that aren't taking care of their soil and their communities, and we want the Farm Bill to incentivize folks like Daryl and others who are doing practices, taking on risks, trying new things that meet the challenges of um, our ag sector and, and the climate right now. So, like, one of the specific things you had was um, a capping how much money um, or, or how much money these large farms can get, because a lot of the supports go to the very, very, very large farms. Yeah, so on the topic of crop insurance reform, over the past 15 to 20 years, federally subsidized crop insurance has really artificially reduced risk, enabling the largest operations to expand their acreage and really putting that financial burden on taxpayers, which the um, increases land access challenges for small and mid-sized farms. And we're calling for common sense limits on crop insurance premium subsidies for the largest operations. We really think this is a no-brainer policy and would also create new funding streams that could help emerging farmers. Um, And so what other crop insurance reforms do you want? We really want to see crop insurance uh, tied to conservation practices. We are in the throes of some real climate craziness, and we're in desperate need of action in every area that we can think of to address the the climate crisis head-on, including through crop insurance. 
And so, um, yeah, especially with the climate change, I mean, these are so so connected. Um, so, um, any other ideas on how to reduce consolidation? Um, I, I know there's been some efforts at um, improving small um, uh, small company small companies, so you have an ecosystem that supports independent farmers. Yeah, so one of the specific policies we're calling for is within the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, which is a working lands conservation program. A lot of that funding is going to confined animal feeding operations. We want to see that funding going to small so, and no funding the big producers. old factory farms. Help the other farms, the farms that are supporting the living soil. So we're going to take a break. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Just what we need. Reject the creeping cancer of greed. Like Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking about the Farm Bill with uh, farmer Daryl Mosel and uh, Sarah Goldman, both with the Land Stewardship Project. And when we went on break, we're talking about market concentration. So in 1977, the largest four meat packers controlled less than 25% of the markets. Now those same four meat packers and some with Chinese ownership control over 85% of the market. And so when you surveyed your members, your small farmers, one of the big problems livestock farmers have is finding uh, slaughterhouses and other ecosystem supports. Yeah, it was pretty stark. So in that Farm Bill survey that we um, did over this past year, 50% or higher um, found that maintaining consistent access to slaughter facilities difficult. So that's a really, really telling statistic. Not only is there market concentration in the packing sector, in addition, small farms cannot find um, slaughterhouses for their uh, for their livestock. So, Daryl, have you also heard uh, farmers talking about the problem with finding um, slaughterhouses? Well, I have, although, you know, I farm in an area where it is, uh, as I keep repeating this, selling a stuck record, uh, just pretty much overwhelmingly cor- cr- uh, crop farming, corn and soybeans. Um, and so I don't have a lot of conversation with that, but I, I experienced it myself for sure. I'm really at this point pretty much at the mercy of, um, of pretty much one company called American Foods, which I think is one of the largest largest cattle buying operations in the world, I, I think. Um, I've done some research on it, and it appears that they they are. And I don't know where else to go, really. That's that's. Uh, I guess I'll echo what, what Sarah has been talking about. It is really a problem that way. And has this um, changed over the forty years ahead. that you've been? Has it changed over the forty years that you've been farming? Oh, big time! No question about it. Yes. Um, you know, I might have just maybe as, as, as short as ten years ago. I think I probably had a, the choices of maybe a dozen places to go. And now, as far as I know, I have one, possibly two, two places I can go, and that's it. So uh, they've, they've, they've consolidated is what's happened. Uh, little by little, they just, just keep buying each other up, or one entity keeps buying up all, all of them as far as that goes. So I think across, well, I mean, I, I, I think most people, especially given 
all of the information in the last couple of years, I and mean, we saw the the COVID crisis with meat processing. We need when it comes to food, um, we it, it's really important to keep food coming. So. To, to rely on one supplier is a dangerous – it's a fragile system. So what can the Farm Bill do? What, what, can, what kind of policies in the Farm Bill can we have to help, um, help um, with more slaughterhouses and more uh, – a stronger re- regional food system? Yeah, so one of the bright spots that I see opening up for the next Farm Bill is around um, enforcing and passing new antitrust and um, anti-consolidation measures through the Farm Bill – Right now, there are a number of policies that have been written and are kind of in the ether of federal policies that could be incorporated into the Farm Bill. I'll just name two of them. Um, there's a bill called the Prohibiting Anti-Competitive Mergers Act, and there's another called the Food and Agribusiness Merger Moratorium and Antitrust Review Act. So those are two specific policies that are out there right now, and we hope to see those incorporated into the final Farm Bill. Um, but those would prevent future mergers. Is there anything to help um, try to um, unwind and just try to support a more diverse, um, resilient food system? Yeah. So in addition to those two bills that are moving, there's also an effort right now um, to create new rules for this Packards and Stockyards Act, which is a very old rule um, that that passed um, about 100 years ago. But right now, um, USDA is in the process of creating new rules that would be able to better enforce the Packards and Stockyards Act. So we're really supportive of that initiative and hope that the Farm Bill and other legislation will continue to support that um, that rule development. So another one of the five key areas, and this takes is the conservation and climate. I mean, the relationship between climate change and agriculture. I mean, it's complex. But uh, so, what type of policies do you think the federal government um, should be? Um, moving forward that would help um, with conservation and um, resilience to the climate crisis? Yeah, so just to kind of ground us before delving into the policy and kind of there's a little bit of wonkiness that goes on there. I just wanted to ground us in kind of what our results found from the Farm Bill survey related to conservation and climate. Um, 90% of the survey respondents indicated that they have experienced more severe weather events on their farm. That's an incredible statistic. Um, 91% said that they experienced extreme temperature swings, and 84% believe that those effects are due to climate change. So there's overwhelming support and indication that farmers are seeing the effects of climate right now on their operations. So now is the time to act and make sure that the Farm Bill incentivizes climate resiliency and regenerative practices. So to that end, um, we have a number of policies that we're we're, um, advocating for in the upcoming Farm Bill. But just to name a few, um, some of them are are things such as creating incentives for farmers to maintain conservation practices. Um, We'd like to see CSP as an easier program to use and apply for, especially for organic producers. Um, and generally, we want to pay farmers for practices that we know have climate benefits as opposed to speculative carbon payment programs. Um, Daryl, can you um, speak at all to those speculative? I mean, a, a lot of the, the speculative carbon programs, and uh, are you familiar with that? You know, the yes, kids? I am. Okay. Yeah. So talk about um, it. Well, I think uh, there's there's 
you know, there's a lot of debate among the different farm organizations. I know I'm also a member of Minnesota Corn Growers, and they sometimes don't agree with everything we say at LSB. Um, but I think that the, the data is pretty, it's pretty conclusive, I think, in terms of having more perennials on the land as opposed to the annual crops that we grow now, you know, the corn and soybeans. Having perennials that uh, capture more carbon is, is just, I, I think it's, uh, I think, I think you can't hardly dispute that. And so that would be a really, a really positive thing that, that the Farm Bill could encourage. And the CSP program does that for the most part. I guess getting back to, you know, the effects of climate change, um, you know, this spring in central Minnesota particularly, there were rain events that were so extreme that I actually believe the erosion that was caused on the farm fields is probably equivalent to maybe a thousand years. Wow. Of, of erosion that might naturally occur. Uh, the, the, the amount of soil that was moved from the fields, uh, you know, down the hills into the streams and things, it's just, it's just, uh, uh, you know, I, I think back to my college days of looking at my, uh, soil, soil class uh, textbook, you know, oftentimes they show these, you know, really, uh, these, uh, extraordinary scenes of erosion. Well, you know what? This last spring, we could have written a hundred textbooks with all the erosion. It is just, it is just out of control. And, and so I'm, I'm really glad to hear that, uh, you know, that our listening sessions put forth such a, such a priority that, uh, climate change is so important because it really is. Well, and you, I mean, having perennials in the land is is kind of the no brainer, low hanging hanging fruit. But I, but I also know there's some people that are like having or thinking about engineering products that can also do some of this, this carbon capture. And there's all these ideas. And I'm not in a position to to evaluate them, but I am in a position to say perennials work. <laughs> I mean, so how do how do how does how can we all support perennial um, based farming practices? Well, I can jump in there just to to um, shed some light on the situation right now with conservation programs. The Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy put out a really telling report that showed how many folks wanted to use working land conservation programs, but you know the amount of funding available to farmers right now is not enough to meet demand. So, um, as Daryl mentioned, like there are some great programs that farmers are using, but you know there's not enough funding going to those programs to allow farmers to implement the practices that they know would create more resilient systems. Yeah, and I might add also um, with the CSB program, I'm going to be uh, utilizing cover crops uh, to be interseeded into my soybeans. Um, it's it's going to cost me a lot of money, and I'm going to get very little in the way of payments through the CSP program. So Sarah's right. I mean, that, the program is, is really underfunded. And most farmers, unless you really, really are dedicated to the cause, and, and I'm not saying they're not out there. They certainly are. Uh, they're just not going to take that risk to do something that's going to cost them a lot of money. And while their neighbors are just continuing, you know, to farm the way we always did. So, yeah, that's... Uh, Funding the CSP program uh, is is so important and it's so long overdue. And I, I just would have to encourage all of your listeners to contact uh, their elected officials to, you know, to make sure that those programs are funded properly. 
And yet, a lot of the funding goes to the um, the confined um, large concentrated animal feeding operations. So a lot of that funding ends up kind of working against the public good. Would would you say that's true, Sarah? Yeah, so we're advocating for um, one specific change. The Environmental Quality Incentives Program currently has a livestock set-aside, um, and we think that set-aside should be reduced um, because most of that funding is going to the largest um, CAFO operations. And if there is a livestock set-aside, set we really would like to see that funding incentivizing pasture-based production methods like those that Daryl and others are using. So, um, so that is that the EQIP. These initials kind of. But tell us what is the EQIP? Yeah, so EQIP um, the, is short for the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. It's a really uh, great conservation program, and it allows a lot of farmers who are just starting in the process of implementing new um, practices on their operation to get a little bit of funding um, so that they're able to take on that risk, try something different, um, you know, maybe do something that they've been a little bit nervous to do previously and don't know how it's going to shake out on their operation. So we see this as instrumental in um, allowing farmers to take on new practices to start implementing regenerative practices that we know eventually will have really enormous um, positive climate impacts. So paying farmers for the practices we know have climate benefits as opposed to some of those speculative carbon programs that have been suggested. And then the other thing is um, is to support the Agricultural Resilience Act. Um, Daryl, do you want to speak on what that might mean? If that's... Right. Um... I, I guess I'd have to almost uh, uh, defer to Sarah. I'm not that familiar with it, actually. Yeah, so I can talk a little bit about this bill. Um, this bill was uh, introduced by Representative Shelley Pingree of Maine, and it is the most comprehensive agriculture and climate bill um, that Congress has seen in a long time. And so we see this as an enormous opportunity. The legislation is already out there and written. It sets um, ambitious but achievable carbon reduction um, goals and lays out uh, for agriculture and lays out specific programs and policies that can be implemented to to reach those goals. So we would like to see the ARA incorporated into the Farm Bill. Awesome, because we need to bring this living soil back, because the living soil, like, observes the carbon. So that's that's what we're going to be. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about People's Garden, an event um, to celebrate People's Garden. And then when we come back, we want to talk about how to support young and beginning and BIPOC farmers. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And I heard about farmers with a plan for that. And it's joy, joy when you grab a chunk of soil. It crumbles like cottage cheese. I know I'm on the right track just standing near. This is fun music uh, from Brett Hessler, um, also with the Land Stewardship. He's working a little bit with the Land Stewardship Project. And um, joining us now by phone is the um, coordinator of the Minneapolis Edible Boulevards, um, Michelle Shaw. And Michelle, you want to do a shout out um, about the People Garden event going on next Saturday, the 24th. This is going to be the topic of our next week's um, Food Freedom Radio show, but just want to give people a teaser of what's going on. So welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Michelle Shaw. Yeah, thank you. Um, we've got a lot going on next Saturday. So one of the events going on um, is the second annual Harvesting the Fruit of Our Ancestors, uh, where there's going to be a lot of entertainment, events for um, youth. We're going to have food, a seed and tree giveaway, um, 
So, yeah, there will be a lot going on at the Celestial Garden on the north side of Minneapolis. Great. And so that's the 24th from uh, noon to 5. And again, we'll be talking about this next week. And then I also want to do a shout out. You have some um, cooking classes coming out at Eastside Food Co-op. And you've been doing these cooking classes about um, growing stuff in the boulevard, edible food in the boulevard, and then eating from the edible food in the boulevard. I mean, that's like so super cool. Yeah, exactly. So another event that's happening on September 24th is at Eastside Food Co-op. So you could actually go right from there over to North Minneapolis. So from 11 to 1230, we have a cooking class with Kelly Shea. And um, Kelly is going to be making a Ghanaian uh, spinach stew with chickpeas. So... um, Please sign up for that. You can go to the Eastside Food Co-op website, and if I'm able to share anything with you that you can post, um, that would be great, too. And then we have another cooking class um, coming up on October 8th at the Four Sisters Farm uh, that they are hosting, and that is at 2839 17th Avenue South. And then in November and December, We have a couple of Zoom cooking classes that uh, we are partnering with Derek Nicholas from the Division of Indian Work, and they are going to be doing a couple of plant-based dishes. So we're really excited about that, and if anyone wants more information, they can go to our Facebook page, um, join our group, and then find out that way how to register. Well, thank you so much, Michelle Shaw. We're going to get back to talking about um, uh, the uh, federal farm bill with Land Stewardship Project. But I really appreciate your time and the energy that goes into this because it's such a wonderful vision of eating in a way that's that honors the earth. I mean, these are the client, climate-resilient, anti-fragile food system that I think our heart dreams of. Well, thank you for having us. We really need to start uh, thinking about sustainability and eating local a lot more. So we appreciate you giving us a shout-out. Great. Well, thank you again so much, Michelle Shaw, uh, coordinator with uh, Minneapolis Edible Boulevards. And now back, um, Sarah Goldman. I mean, I want to make sure we talk about um, Land Stewardship Project's effort to support young, beginning, and BIPOC farmers, as well as how to shift the entire food system to pretty much. So tell us a little bit about some of the concrete proposals to to help young farmers um, start with farming. Yeah, so I just to start out, I want to mention that land access is foundational to any of the other programs that we're talking about. If folks don't have access to land, how are they going to implement um, climate-friendly practices? How are they going to utilize crop insurance programs? How are they going to build regional food systems? So land access is the basis of a lot of all of the, well, the basis of all the policies that we're advocating for. Um, and we found it really telling, and again, in our Farm Bill survey, um, about half the resp- re- people who responded to the survey found that purchasing affordable land um, somewhat very or extremely difficult. Um, and then those who went the extra mile and sought out loans and, and other mechanisms for financing, um, they they reported 32 percent reported having been denied a loan, and the majority of those rejected believed that they were rejected because the loan officer did not understand their farming practices or business model. So there is both an urgent need for more land access for beginning farmers. In addition, we need um, the loan officers who are operating on behalf of the USDA to understand that there are many different ways a farm 
can can be structured and and there are many different types of farms that that um, folks want to go out and and begin. And Daryl Mosel, uh, you're a farmer, also a board member with Land Stewardship Project. So the price of land has been skyrocketing. What kind of impact does that have? Does that on people and on communities? Well, it, it, it's absolutely devastating. Um, I, you know, as I was talking earlier, we, we know the average age of farmers is, is way up above the normal occupational ages. And, you know, you might say, well, it's because nobody wants to farm. But that's not necessarily true. I have a lot of young farmers that have contacted me over the years, uh, want to know if they could, you know, possibly rent my farm when I'm done someday. And they are out there. They are interested. But yes, if you if you look at the, the average cost of land right now, it's, it's just not going to work. There's no way you can possibly uh, make the payments and, and provide a living for yourself. And then you know the other problem is uh, you know just getting it, just getting somebody to work with you. If if I was going to transfer my farm to a young person, which I intend to do, you know I would have to work with them over a long period of time. Because a young person can't go out to an auction and bid, you know, and, and then next week come up with the money. That's just not going to happen. So we're going to have to have, you know, my generation be willing to be uh, supportive and be willing to be patient to work with young people and, and, and maybe, you know, sell your farm in, in, in small portions uh, with the idea that possibly they would, you know, rent it and then they could buy more of it as the years go by. So there are some, there are some things that can be done, but you're absolutely right. The cost of land right now is, is um, well in my particular area, it is averaging somewhere around fifteen thousand an acre, which is uh, you know just such a sharp rise from what it was not too many years ago. And you think so of fifteen thousand an acre, and how much money would you make on average on that acre? I mean, it doesn't seem to make sense that it's so high in some ways. I mean, the, the money's. I don't know that type of. Uh, do you make how much money do you make on an acre at fifteen? <laughs> I mean, how much money would you have to make to pay off that loan? It's just I. I but um, I know that we only yeah. have down a, a minute left, so I just want to give you guys a chance to shout out on how do we um, what how else can people learn more about these issues? Yeah, so right now we need everyone from consumers to farmers to food system, all food system stakeholders to make their voice heard. We have about a year as the farm bill is being, the new farm bill is being drafted um, when we can influence this process and we need our legislators and um, folks involved and engaged to know that now is the time to pass a transformational farm bill. Um, The time demands the time demands nothing else of us right now we're in a really we're in a critical period and and we need some drastic changes implemented great well thank you so much sarah goldman and uh, daryl mosel uh, both with land stewardship project anything else you want to say to shout out here um just thank you to our, again, to our Farm Bill Organizing Committee and also to our external platform reviewers. And we encourage you all to check out our Farm Bill platform on the Land Stewardship Project's website. Yeah, and go back to living land. And, and also it's the relationship we have with the land and each other. Um, and um, so many problems, climate change, all this stuff. But we can make it better And believing and knowing and working towards that future. So I appreciate your work and appreciate your work, Daryl. And here's to living soil. Place. Now I'm working with nature. Hallelujah.